0: It has been two years, two months, and two days since I last treated a patient. The last episodes have been trying to impart some kind of knowledge. I always want to do that to some degree, but this episode is really going to be more talking about some of my favorite topics and how the body responds. For me, one of the most impactful moments about how incredible the human body is was seeing drawings from Dislocations and Fractures by Dr. By Dr. Sir Ashley Cooper. He was a physician in the mid-1800s and would draw things that he would find in the body. And two of those images really stood out to me. One was of a person's pelvis who likely suffered a dislocated hip. If you listen to my last episode, you'll recall that medicine in the 1800s wasn't great. This person maybe got leeches for the hip, but it wasn't relocated. Now, you might imagine how painful life would be for this person, but if your survival depended on continuing to, say, farm, well, then you keep farming with a dislocated hip. The body is so adaptable that this person grew a new, albeit rudimentary, hip socket. There was one hip socket, then another overlapping hip socket where the thigh bone was resting. It was fucking incredible! In another drawing, it looked like the thigh bone had punched through the hip socket, and a sort of circular joint grew around the neck of the thigh bone. It's as if the body just said, well, I guess this is how we're doing things now, then adapted to the new circumstance like it was no big deal. This adaptability is part of what I find so fascinating about the human body. It's like a backup to what evolution was supposed to accomplish. To personify it, evolution says, oh no, I broke, and adaptability responds, it's cool, I got you. The way I see it, human evolution broke about 12,000 years ago, give or take, depending on which which anthropologist you speak to. By that I mean that what modern society is today started roughly 12,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture. This rapid progress quickly obviated natural selection pressures that are at least partially responsible for human evolution, if not mostly responsible. Random mutation certainly still occurs in humans, But the survival of the most fit concept of taking those random mutations and adding reproduction to evolve the human species into something more able to survive doesn't really happen anymore. 12,000 years is just way too fast for evolution to keep up. We simply will never evolve to be desk-sitters. Adaptability at least gives us some chance in the face of desk-sitting. I would like to clear something up for anyone listening. A proper ergonomic desk is a myth. The word ergonomics is defined by Merriam-Webster as an applied science concerned with designing and arranging things people use so that the people and things interact most efficiently and safely. While you can develop efficiency in a desk interaction, you cannot safely sit in a chair. It's not a thing. Let me explain in a verbose and roundabout way that I think anyone who's listened to all of my episodes will know is my style. It starts with the cerebellum. For non-providers, the cerebellum is a large structure in the back of your brain. Its primarily primary responsibilities are balance, posture, motor learning, and fine-tuning of movements. It does a lot more, but other stuff isn't really important for this discussion. I love the cerebellum. It's my favorite part of the whole nervous system. For other PTs out there, I know many people struggle with treating motor control problems and instead prefer interventions that focus on correcting mobility problems. I was always terrible at that stuff. Manual therapy was my weakest skill set by far, but I loved teaching proper movement patterns. Anyway, one important thing I want listeners to remember about the cerebellum going forward is that it has a built-in map for functional movement patterns. The easiest demonstration of what I mean by that map is that no one taught you how to walk. That program is hardwired into your brain, and the cerebellum is crucial for making it happen. There are lots of functional movement patterns hardwired in, and over time, we screw them up by doing not normal things, such as sitting in a chair. Let's do some magic. Well, for some of you. It's been my experience that this magic trick doesn't really work well for people who have lower tone. For non-providers, tone is essentially the resting level of electricity running through your muscles. The classic example of a low-toned individual is Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. It's a cartoon, so it's exaggerated, but his movements were very floppy, as opposed to a high-tone individual who would be very stiff and rigid in their movements. There's a subtle aso- uh, sensation associated with tone, so this magic-, magic trick becomes almost imperceptible to people who are on the lower resting tone scale. Okay, so the first step is to sit in a chair. Bonus points if it's a chair that is supposed to be ergonomically correct for you. And kick your feet out so that, like you might be relaxing on a beach. Personally, I like to cross my ankles to really drive home that relaxed state. The goal is to let the chair seat and back support your body, and the floor to support your heels. Do as little as you possibly can. You might even want to take a nice deep breath and let the stresses of the day go. No one would call this good posture, but it is relaxing, isn't it? Some of us even find ourselves in this position throughout the day without thinking about it. Let's take five seconds to just be at peace. Okay. Now I want you to shift your feet back so the soles are flat on the ground, and pay close attention to your quads, the muscles in the front of your thighs. Ta-da! Many of you listening just felt your quad muscles relax. But weren't you just relaxing with your feet kicked out? That was the whole point of what I wanted you to do, do no work. And yet, putting your feet flat on the ground caused your quads to shut down even more than they were a moment ago. Here's what just happened. Your cerebellum evolved over millions of years to understand body position relative to gravity. It's tailored to your species, so your cat has a different understanding of gravity than you do. But for most of human history, we didn't have chairs, Our cerebellum's reference point of gravity is largely based on standing, walking, and running. If you did sit, it was typically on a rock or a fallen tree, basically something pretty uncomfortable, so we didn't stay there for long. In fact, what we were more likely to do was get down into a deep squat position. If you're not familiar with what I mean by a deep squat, don't look up workout videos. Instead, look up pictures and videos of small children squatting down to play with something on the floor. What you'll see is they effectively put their butt on their heels and just rest there. Adults look at that and go, there's no way I could do that. And you're right. But adults used to be able to do that before modern society took over and the built environment ruined our bodies. So back to the quad relaxing thing. Standing is a position where your knees are straight, your hips are neutral, and your feet are flat on the ground. These joint positions are well understood by the cerebellum according to that body map it has. Stacking your bones means very little muscle work is needed to keep you upright against gravity. However, if your feet are out in front of you, the cerebellum registers that hips are bent, knees are straight, and there's pressure on the heels. Oh no, I'm falling backwards! This causes muscles in the front of your body to contract, trying to pull you forward so you don't slam the back of your head into the ground behind you. It is receiving input from the chair that doesn't line up with the body map the cerebellum has, and the fact that your joints aren't continuously changing position as they would in a fall is kind of confusing for it. So the muscle contraction isn't intense, but it is present. Now, when you slide your feet back so your feet are flat on the ground, the position of bent knees and hips plus flat feet on the ground are a little more familiar to it. Flat feet means you're not falling backward about to slam your head on the ground. You're also not yet in the deep squatting rest position. You're midway between standing and deep squat. Your cerebellum can let gravity do the work of bringing you to a deep squat position, but it does need to control the descent. However, there's a chair in the way. The feet out, falling backward position is a big threat, meaning bigger contraction. But even sitting in the quote-unquote ergonomic position in a chair is still creating constant contractions. We spend most of our day sitting. In other words, we're in a pretty constant contracted state for the muscles that you would control descent from standing to deep squatting. Namely, these are the quads and the spinal extensors. Those are the big muscles that run up and down next to your spine. Your cerebellum is learning that you need to have the quads and spinal extensors contracted most of the day. Practice makes perfect, right? It doesn't really understand why, but you've taught it that it needs to keep those muscle groups on all the time. Next, we have another spinal cord reflex I didn't really touch on a few episodes ago when I was talking about the nervous system. It's called the reciprocal inhibition reflex. When you contract a muscle, say your biceps, to pick up a bag of groceries, the reciprocal inhibition reflex fires off, turning your tricep muscles off, which are the antagonistic muscle group to your biceps. This is for efficiency. If you're trying to contract a muscle, why would you also contract the antagonist? That just slows you down and makes it harder to lift that bag of groceries. And like I mentioned before, spinal cord reflexes bypass the brain for speed and efficiency. Now imagine you're trying to run away from a bear that wants to eat you. If every time you tried to contract a muscle, its antagonist wasn't shut down, you'd be fighting yourself making it like trying to run through molasses. The bear would catch you and eat you. Not good for survival of the species. Also think about how many muscles have to fire in rapid succession to sprint. Going from muscle to brain and back down to antagonist muscle just isn't going to work. Thus, we developed the spinal cord reflex. So what's the antagonist to the quads? The hamstrings. What's the antagonist to your spinal extensors? Your abs, or as we lovingly like to call it, your core. Now that we have taught the cerebellum to leave the quads and spinal extensors on for most of every day by sitting in a chair, we have reciprocal inhibition shutting down the core and hamstrings even when we stand. And we finally have arrived at the end of being verbose and roundabout. A proper ergonomic desk is a myth. You are built to move, and chairs are highly confusing to your cerebellum and indirectly destructive to your body. For non-providers, How many times have you heard about a weak core? How about weak hamstrings? How many of you have tried to strengthen them? How many of you have even been prescribed some kind of core strengthening routine by your providers? To providers, in what world do you think you can use strength to counter reciprocal inhibition? It doesn't matter how strong muscle fibers are, if they're being actively inhibited then the strength is irrelevant. I challenge you to first work on down-training the spinal extensors and quads, Then see if your patient really has a weak core and hamstrings. I can hear it now. But Adam, if they've been inhibited for years, then of course those muscles will be weak. If we just downtrain the quads and extensors, then we're leaving them without any support. It's a valid statement, but you have to prove it first. How many of you have had a patient with shoulder pain and a weak push? Then you teach them to push with their serratus anterior to show the patient that they have both less pain and more strength. Why would the core and hamstrings be any different in this circumstance? What I'm about to say is certainly an opinion based entirely on anecdotal evidence from my PT career, but I believe it deeply. Unless you're working with someone whose job depends on actually being strong, such as my NFL athletes, someone who's a package carrier at UPS, or the like, non-surgical patients simply don't need to strengthen anything. They need to learn motor control, When they learn how to move correctly according to that cerebellar map, then they become strong for free. Next episode, I'm going to go into another one of my favorite topics regarding how cool the body is. The mutants who live among us. Professional athletes. Signing off for today, never settle for mediocre, but be careful how hard you burn striving for greatness. Sometimes that cost is more than your mind can afford.